Good morning, familia. Uh, man, I'm just so grateful for this morning. And if you're new with us, I want to personally just say hello and welcome. Uh, if I wasn't able to get to you, uh, this past weekend was kind of hard for me. Uh, I woke up on Friday with a severe, severe migraine, and uh, it's still lingering, and these lights really don't help. Uh, and so just bear with me because. I just don't feel the best. I don't feel uh, 100%, uh, but I'm still grateful to be here with you. And I hope this morning you didn't feel like uh, you had to come to church. I hope this morning you uh, saw it as a blessing, a blessing to come and, and worship the God you love with the people you love. I think it's something extraordinary that we get to do. And I do hope you see it as a blessing because, you know, I just think of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where, you know, when they... If they ever get caught in a place worshiping the Lord with other people, there's a reality that they will be martyred or even killed. And so I'm just blessed that even in this moment, uh, we don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about somebody finding out that you are here today and that you will be martyred or, or killed. And, and so I'm just grateful for that. Um, and I just I feel for our brothers and sisters across the world because some of them are even coming to us right now into Tulsa in the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of months. And uh, we get to love on them. We get to show them kindness. We get to show them uh, the love of the Lord. And, and so I hope that not, not maybe not just this morning, but even this past week, you took a moment. You took a moment just to say, Lord, thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your leadership in my life. And look, I, I don't know who needs to hear this today, uh, but I think somebody does. But did you know, or really do you remember, that, that God is, is a great and perfect father to the fatherless. He's a great and perfect leader to the leaderless. And maybe you do have a father, maybe you do uh, feel like you have a leader. Man, God is your ultimate father. God is your ultimate leader in your life, and he's worth following. And in those moments where you feel lost, God leads you. In those moments you feel confused, God leads you. In those moments you don't know what to do and things are unclear, God is leading you. And God is our ultimate leader. And as God is leading us, I think a great question we need to ask is, who are we leading? Who are we leading to God as God is leading us? And so that brings us to the title of our message this morning. The title of our message is, Reconstruct How to Lead. Reconstruct How to Lead. Uh, we've been in this sermon series in Nehemiah, uh, and today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. But two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, however you want to phrase it, uh, we had this, this message of reconstruct how to pray. And then last week we had the message where it was reconstruct how to reconstruct. And then today again we see this reconstruct how to lead. And as we look at, at this passage in, in Nehemiah chapter 5, I think it'll be good for us to just think through uh, how God leads us, and how we are to lead others. So let me ask you this question, uh, and I want you to think about it just for a moment. When you think of a bad leader, who do you think of? When you think of a bad leader, who comes to your mind? Okay, so let me show you who comes to my mind. When I think of a bad leader, now some of you have some names in your minds, and I'd, you should probably write that down and confess it to the Lord later. So 
when I, when I think of a bad leader, who's who I think of? I think of this big, bad bear from Toy Story. And I don't know if you know his name. Maybe this is the name I need to write down. But his name's Lotso. And Lotso is just a terrible leader. He's a bad leader. He's arrogant. He's prideful. He doesn't care about anyone else except for himself. He just yells at everyone. He doesn't care for anyone. He's just like, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what Lotso wants. This is what Lotso needs. And he never encourages anybody. He's not very encouraging at all. He's not very caring at all. He's a bad leader. And uh, when we think about that, he's not just a not caring leader, but if he was a real person, he would not be a Christ-like leader. So that's why I think of when I think of a bad leader. And, and as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to see something interesting of this contrast of leadership. Because I believe, you might be thinking of yourself, you know, Misael, what, Misael, what, what is a leader? Who is a leader? Well, think about this. You can even write this down. Leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. And each one of you sitting here right now is a leader. Why? Because you have influence. You have influence on someone whether you know it or not. I mean, it doesn't really matter how old you are. I mean, I'm even looking at my little cousin who's about five years old. He's a leader. Why? Because there's another little cousin that's about one years old that is watching everything he does. So if he puts on this little hat, he wants to put on a little hat. If he grabs a lightsaber and hits the dog, well, he wants to grab the lightsaber and hit the dog as well. And I'm like, what in the world? But he's a leader. I mean, he's, he's a leader leading this little one-year-old. Why? Because he has this influence. And so you have influence. And, and so we need to think of, okay, Lord, don't allow me to be a bad leader that just wants to take and take and take. Rather, Lord, help me be a leader who gives and gives and gives because that's who you are. God, help me be someone who thinks of others rather than myself. And that's what we're going to see all in Nehemiah chapter 5. So go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 with me. And as you, as you get there, and again, you can always use the table of contents, or uh, maybe you're smart and you use that little ribbon thing in your Bible. But as you get there, let me just remind us of a couple of things. Uh, when we started this series, I asked you a really personal question. I asked you, as we walk through this, what is maybe something that God is reconstructing in you? Or maybe what is something that you need to ask the Lord? Lord, where do you, what do you need to reconstruct in me? And I really hope that's something that you've been praying about. I hope that's something that you've really taken into account and, and questioning yourself. But today I want to ask even a more personal question, maybe even a more uh, deeper question that's very practical in our life. Maybe you have in mind what that thing is of what God needs to reconstruct in your life or in your family or in even us, even us as a church. And as we think about that, here's, here's a deeper question. How? How are we going to do that? How are we going to join the Lord in doing that? How are we going to lead out through this reconstruction? How are we going to do that? Because as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, that's something important for us to look at. And maybe you're already there. And let me just remind you of the context that we're in. In Nehemiah chapter 4, it was this incredible ending and moment where the, the Israelites were all together working in one mind and in, in one spirit, sword in one hand, shovel in the other hand, and they're working together, building the wall. They're high-fiving each other like, man, we're doing this. They're loving each other. They're doing great. They're fighting off the enemies, and then chapter 5 comes along, and instead of fighting the enemy out there, they're fighting the enemy in here. 
and there's this internal conflict. They turn against each other. The nobles and the leaders and the more, the more wealthy are now trying to take advantage of the less wealthy, trying to take advantage of their own people. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stand up together and read uh, the first eight verses. So let's go ahead and, and stand together. And we'll read Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 8 to 1 together. So it says this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we, are sons, uh, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their cry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and they accused, then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. This is the word of the Lord. And praise be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at, at this, we're going to see that Nehemiah doesn't lead from a place of self-gain. If anything, he leads in a place of humility. And so here's the main idea for us this morning. I want you to write this down. The main idea is this, that God reconstructs with humble leaders. God reconstructs with humble leaders. And so this morning, we're going to highlight these three things that happen within Israel and and the first one comes from verses 1 to 8. And, and here's, here's the first one. Here's the first thing we're going to highlight. Israel's in-house conflict. Israel's in-house conflict. So I just want you to imagine this, right? Israel is, is tirelessly working. They're working so hard to build the wall. The whole families are coming together again, spear in hand, shovel in hand. They're going for it. They're, they're not even taking breaks. They're not even taking the clothes off their back. Like, let me just remind you what Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 21 to 23 say. It says this, Nehemiah says, So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I said to the people, have every man and, helper, and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went to water. So again, just imagine these families working together on the city walls where by day they're trying to reconstruct the walls and then by night they're guarding the walls. That's what they're doing, that they're just working tirelessly and they're so focused on reconstructing these walls. If you see, there's this great outcry because they're so focused on doing all of that that they couldn't even work on their land. But here's what's even worse. There was a famine 
there was a drought. And so even if they could work on their land, nothing was going to come out of it. And now, they're, now Israel's in trouble. And they said their kids were numerous. That means they had a lot of kids. And they had a lot of mouths to feed. They had a lot of people to take care of. And, and what we see in, in chapter 4 is that Israel was vulnerable from the outside. Their walls were not constructed yet. And so they were vulnerable to the outsiders coming in. But then now what we see is they're vulnerable from inside. <clears throat> from inside. Where now they're hungry and, and they're tired and they can't even provide food for their own people. So now instead of the outsiders trying to take advantage of Israel, now you have their own people, the own Israelites, trying to take advantage of them. And these people who are trying to take advantage are these nobles and officials, where they're paying, they're making uh, those Israelites pay interest. And, and what's interesting is that these, these, these head of households are having to take their sons and their daughters into what's called a debt slave or debt slavery. And I do find it uh, necessary to kind of just look at this and say, okay, what does it mean that the Israelites made or, or put their sons and daughters into slavery. Because the slavery that it's talking about is not the slavery that we know from the United States or maybe even other parts of the world. This kind of slavery is what I just said, a kind of debt slavery where a head of household, what they would do is they said, okay, I need to borrow money, and so you let me borrow money, and I'll give you a son or a daughter to work for you for free until I can pay that off. And so in, until I can pay it off, they'll just work for you for free. They'll do whatever you need, and then I'll slowly try to pay it off. And if they couldn't pay it off, uh, what would happen is after seven years, that, that son or that daughter would be let go of their responsibilities and give it back to the family household. Uh, and then they would no longer have to pay the debt. Uh, that's just what it was like for uh, them and what God had said in his word and uh, in, in, in the law in order for them uh, to be fair and all of that. So it's a different kind of slavery. But what we see here is that even as, as Israel is trying to do their best to be in the will of God, even as they're trying their best to say, okay, Lord, this is what you've asked us to do, asked us to do so we're going to do it, they encountered trouble from the outside and from the inside. And I don't, I don't know if you can relate to that or not. Where you right now are maybe trying to do the best that you can to be on the will of the Lord, but you're encountering trouble left and right. Well, that's exactly what Israel's going through. It's exactly in this moment there's just lack of food, and, and now they're no longer having to worry about uh, Samballot or Tobiah from the outside, but man, they're having to worry about their friends or their leaders from the inside. They're saying, why is it now that our leaders are trying to take advantage of us? And Nehemiah is, is, is saying to these nobles and officials, you guys are being ridiculous. You guys are being ridiculous charging your own people interest. And not only is it ridiculous because it's your own people, but it's ridiculous because you're going against the law of the Lord. You see, I want you to write this down. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. I want you to write that down because this is what it says. This is what God says to his people. Do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that you can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you must not charge your brother interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you are entering to possess. That's what the Lord says. And so not only are these nobles and officials being ridiculous, but they're disobeying the Lord. They're disobeying, and so, I mean, rightfully so, right here, it says that Nehemiah became angry. In verse number 6, he was very angry, and then he pondered. 
He pondered. And, and he, I, want, I want to highlight that word ponder with you real quick. That word ponder in Hebrew is actually malak. Malak, it's kind of a fun word. And this Hebrew word malak, the meaning of it really means to ponder or to think through something with the counsel of someone else. To think through something with the counsel of someone else. Which is fascinating because really what Nehemiah was doing was that he was thinking through and seeking the counsel of the Lord. Of saying, Lord, how, how do I handle this situation? And so we see Nehemiah how to seek the Lord and handle some internal conflict. That's what Nehemiah had to do. And, and I think there's so many things that we can learn from this. And so I just want to make this personal real quick. Right? Because we're looking at Nehemiah and it's really easy to say, okay, that's what was happening with them. But I think we need to really look personally and even as a church of saying, okay, we're looking at Israel's you know, in-house conflict, but what does it have to do with us? Well, let's, let's think of the reality that some of the most hurtful things come from the people that we love the most. Some of the most hurtful words or hurtful actions come from the people that we love or that we do life with. Why? Because their words and their actions hold so much weight. They hold so much weight to either encourage us greatly or to hurt us greatly. So there's this reality that we have to be careful in how we lead with our words and our actions because they really hurt us the most internally, especially during tough times. I mean, imagine the tensions that happen when you're going through a tough time and then you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing. It's like times two. Times two. And so we have to be careful in all of that and in the actions of, of the nobles and the actions of the officials, I think they really highlight their walk with the Lord. I think they really highlight that they were really more committed to themselves than they were committed to the Lord. And the warning for us is that sometimes, if not all the time, our words and our actions reveal our walk with the Lord, reveal that we are people that are more for ourselves than for the Lord. And I think Nehemiah knew this thing. He knew that in order for the reconstruction to finish, in order for them to keep going, they had to be a people who were committed to the Lord and to one another. Amen. To the Lord and to one another. So what he's doing is he's confronting these individuals and saying, man, you have to be committed to the Lord. You have to be committed to these individuals in order for us to really reconstruct Jerusalem. And so in the same way, maybe not only are you personally saying, okay, Lord, I have to reconstruct this, but I just want to make this kind of application for us in general, for us in this room. As a church and as a congregation, we are really reconstructing this place. We really are. We are reconstructing our, our reputation in the community. We are reconstructing our, our discipleship systems, our organizational systems. We are reconstructing the methods of ministry without ever compromising the message of the gospel. We're not, and, and we will not, but you have to know that you play a part. You play such a vital part in all of this, and we have to be focused on the mission. We have to be focused on the gospel, because if we don't do that, what will happen is this an internal conflict. And we don't want to do that. We have to be focused on what the Lord has in front of us. And, and I just want you to remember, even chapter 4, where the people were reconstructing the wall that was closest to them. And so as you reconstruct the wall that is closest to you, as you think about that, how are you leading? 
How are you leading through all of that? If God really reconstructs through humble leaders, how are you humbly leading the people around you? And, and l- let me just ask you this. As you lead, are you, are you someone who is saying or doing things that are maybe destroying or tearing down what God is reconstructing? Or are you saying and doing things that are building up and, and constructing what God is already doing in humility? I think those are two things that we have to keep in mind. And so the first thing that we saw is, is God's in-house conflict. And the next thing that we're going to see in chapter 5 is Israel's in-house commitment. Israel's in-house commitment. And so I'll start reading in verse 9 if you'll read with me. Starting in verse 9, it says this. So think about this. Nehemiah says something and then all the people kept quiet because they had nothing to say. And then in verse 9, he says, so I continued. <laughs> he didn't stop there. What are you what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also took out the folds of my robe and said, In the same way, may God shake out their house and possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So here we see Israel's in-house commitment. And that's what we're highlighting right here. And, and so what we see is that Nehemiah is confronting these nobles and officials. He's confronting them. And, and what he's doing is honestly he's like straight up calling them out. Straight up calling them out on their sin and saying, you need to repent. You need to come back and recommit to the Lord. Recommit to these people. And you need to do it out of fear in reverence for the Lord because he is holy, he is almighty, he is ever-knowing, he is incredible and a glorious God. You need to repent and come back because you are disobeying the Lord. And, and I mean, honestly, if we think about it, we, just as Nehemiah, know that there's a difference between someone saying, yeah, I'm going to repent, and someone actually repenting. There's a difference between someone saying, okay, you know, I'm, that sounds cool, I agree, and someone actually following through with that promise and following through with that commitment that they said that they were going to do. And so because Nehemiah knows that, what does he do? He calls up these people. He's like, no, no, no. Let's make an oath. Let's actually say we're going to commit. Let's actually say we're going to do this. And so as he makes them commit, he does this weird thing in verse 13. So look at it. He does this weird thing where he, like, gets the fold of his robe and he kind of, like, shakes it. And he says, yeah, that's what's going to happen to you. And I know that seems kind of weird to us. It seems really weird, like, okay, what does that even mean? So in this context, let me just explain it to you. In this cultural context, uh, what, the, what the people had in their robes was kind of like a built-in mini purse and mini wallet in their robe to where they could keep their like, most personal belongings, the most personal valuable things with them right here with them at all times. And so what Nehemiah was doing was saying, okay, this is what will happen if you don't 
um, if, if you don't follow through with your commitment, if you don't follow through with your promise, and if you disobey the Lord. What will happen is that God will shake you out and empty the most valuable things of your life. He will empty out all of your riches. He will empty out your belongings from your personal and private little pocket because you think it's all yours, but it's really God's. And so what Nehemiah is saying is like God will empty you out if you disobey him. And that's what Nehemiah was symbolizing with the whole shaking of the robes and telling them what will happen. And, and so what we see in this just little part of, of Nehemiah is this whole contrast this whole contrast of the leadership of Nehemiah and then the leadership of the nobles and the officials. You see that the nobles and officials, they wanted to just take, take, and take, and even gain interest. And what Nehemiah says in this, in this next part is saying, guys, like, I'm even lending out money to people, but I'm not asking interest. Uh, but I'm wanting to give, and I'm wanting to help them out. And so we just see this entire contrast with them. You see, I think Nehemiah is being a great example of what it's like to be a leader, but I think he was just following in the footsteps of God. Because ultimately, God, like I said, is our great and amazing leader of our life. And God has given to us, his people, and even given to Israel so much. I mean, think about your life, how God has given to you just so much, and God continues to give to us and bless us. But you know what's crazy? I want you to think about this. If God stopped giving to you today, if God stopped blessing you today, do you know that he would have already given you way too much? He would have already blessed you way too much. He would have already, I mean, he would have already given me way more than I deserve if God stopped giving and blessing me today. That's how much God has given. I mean, just think about all the things that God has done and especially how God has given his one and only perfect son, Jesus. He's given him to us. And he tells us in his word that whoever repents and confesses that they are sinful and whoever believes and understands and knows that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all and of their life, that they will be saved, they will be transformed. God has given us this moment in this, in this, in this Jesus in order to have a personal relationship with him a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a personal relationship with God the Father, a personal relationship with God the Holy Spirit. And not just a personal relationship, but when that moment dies, or when that moment comes when we die, that moment comes where we take our last breath. Man, because of Jesus, we won't be in hell. We'll be with Jesus. We'll be with God forever. We'll be with him in, in, in a way that is not interrupted by sin. And what's just incredible about Jesus is that Jesus makes us new creations. And here's what I want you to just realize about that. Jesus has always asked us to change. Jesus has come in order for us to change and not be the same. I mean, we see that the, the new has come, that we are to put on the new and take off the old to take off all those things because we are new creations. And when I think about what Jesus has done, I can think of change as a blessing. Like, Lord, thank you that you came so I don't stay the same. Thank you so much, Lord, that I can live a new life. And, Lord, it's a blessing that when you move in my life, when you move in our church's life, when you move in my family's life, <laughs> we don't get stuck over here, but we move. 
and we change. And so this change is a blessing. And when we commit ourselves to the Lord, when we commit ourselves to others, what's beautiful is that we really don't stay the same. What's beautiful is that we do change. And so whenever we experience change in our life for the better, man, let's, let's praise the Lord. Because that's what we see Nehemiah doing with these, uh, with these nobles and officials. He's saying, guys, it's time to change. It's time to set away the old and now bring in the new. Let's make this commitment. Let's change together. And so that's what we see in those verses. And then I want to point to you to the rest of the verses, which is 14 to 19. So what we've seen is Israel's in-house conflict. We've seen Israel's in-house commitment. And then the next thing that we're going to see is Israel's in-house caretaker. Israel's in-house caretaker. So I want you to look at, uh, as, we, as we read these next couple of verses, I want you to just realize and look at how Nehemiah, as Israel's leader, is just taking care of God's people. So starting in verse 14, it says this. Moreover, from the twi- uh, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until their 32nd year, 12 years, Neither I, my brothers, ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God. For all I have done for these people. So here Nehemiah, he's, he's really just telling us what he did. He's telling us what, uh, what he did for these people, how he took care of them. And, and let's be honest, you know, Israel's ultimate caretaker is God. But God entrusted to Nehemiah to lead these people, to, to take care of them, to, to love them. And he did it, and it says right here, out of reverence for the Lord. Out of a type of fear that led to reverence of saying, I will do my best because the Lord deserves it. And so as just we keep reading, he, I mean, he did this for 12 years. And so I just want us to realize that as Nehemiah was taking care of these people, he kind of did it in three ways. He, could, he took care of them by not exhausting them. He didn't exhaust these people. What he did is that he gave them moments of, okay, here's where you work and how you work. And then he gave them moments of rest and, and how to rest. So he didn't exhaust them. The next thing is that he really he devoted himself to them. So he took care of these people by not exhausting them. He took care of them by devoting himself to, to them. Or he devoted himself, his time, and even his men, his people, to continue to work on the wall, to continue to work for them, to provide for them. Which is really the third thing that we see in all of this is that he took care of, of Israel by providing for them. He brought people to his table. He brought people and saying, hey, come eat with me. Come eat with how the Lord has, has blessed me. 
And so in all of this, I think Nehemiah helps us understand that we have to learn from God how to be leaders. Because God is, is this humble leader and God reconstructs with humble leaders and we can learn that we maybe have to take a moment and take, and take a step back of saying, okay, God, maybe I need to reconstruct how to lead. And maybe I've been misunderstanding what leadership looks like and Lord, maybe I've been misunderstanding uh, who you are and, and, and maybe I need to do a better job of, of seeking you, Lord, because you're right there. And I know we've had some application in, in, in all of this message, but you might be asking, okay, Misael, what, is this, what does all this mean for me? What does this mean for us? So if someone asks you today at lunch and they say, okay, what did you learn today? You can say, well, God reconstructs with humble leaders, and that's awesome. But then the big takeaway, the big application is this, is that as leaders, because you are a leader because you have influence, as leaders, we must imitate the humble attitude of Christ. As leaders, we must imitate the humble attitude of Christ. You see, as, as human beings, we're kind of prone to imitate people. You know, I told you about my little five-year-old cousin, you know, hitting the dog with the lightsaber, and then my little baby one-year-old cousin, you know, doing the same thing. We all imitate people, and what's interesting is that we imitate people who we think have a platform. We imitate people who we, who we admire. Uh, we imitate people who maybe, you know, we aspire to be. Uh, and I know this might be a little silly, but I'll just give you another Toy Story reference just, just so you can come back with me. But uh, when I think of, <laughs> of this, I think of like the little aliens from Toy Story, you know, like the little like squishy guys that uh, Buzz Lightyear found in that, in that one thing, and they're like, master, you know, let's, uh, let's look at those little aliens, these little guys, you know. When I think of these little guys, whenever they found out Buzz, they just wanted to follow him around. They wanted to imitate Buzz because Buzz was like this coolest, the coolest guy, the coolest guy to them. And uh, what's interesting is that as Buzz Lightyear is over here like trying to save people and sacrifice himself for others, they kind of did the same thing. And so why did they want to do that? Well, because Buzz was like their master. Now, I know it's kind of silly, but, and I'm not trying to equate Buzz Lightyear with God or Buzz Lightyear with Jesus. I'm not trying to do that. But we have a master, an ultimate master who's totally worth following, totally worth imitating. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, man, we should be imitators of Christ. We should be imitators of, of who he is because he's our ultimate leader. And if we think about Jesus when he came to earth, Jesus came to earth to lead in humility. Jesus came to earth serving and, and caring and sacrificing. And so when I think about our lives, I think all of us should be leading and, and influencing in that same way. You see, again, I just want to make sure you know that you have influence. Like maybe, maybe you're an elementary, maybe you're a middle school, a middle schooler, maybe you're a high schooler, maybe you're in college, maybe you're post-grad, maybe you're adulting, maybe you're adulting with kids, maybe you're adulting with grandkids, maybe you're adulting with just you and your wife or by yourself, you're just adulting. But all of you have this kind of influence because that's what the Lord has, has given us. And, uh, and so I want to ask you, how are you leading and are you leading 
in the way that Christ led. And so you might be asking, okay, Misael, how, how did Christ lead? How can we say to imitate the humble attitude of Christ? Well, let me read this to you. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 3 and 8. That says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Check this out. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That whole passage right there, all of that, should propel us just to like worship the Lord like it should propel us to just want to sing all day because the almighty God who has and forever will sit on his throne came down to our filth, came down to us to die for us. The God almighty, think about this, the God almighty constructed his kingdom on the humility of Christ. And as we think about reconstructing, we have to think of it in humility. Because this should encourage us to be leaders who imitate the humble attitude of Christ. And it should allow us and propel us and encourage us to be people who lead others to do the same. And then it says, have the interest of others more than the interest of yourself. And it makes me think that there are these moments where the, the more mature have to sacrifice for the less mature. It's just really interesting how, how that works. And so here's, here's kind of the, the big challenge for you. It is to imitate the humble attitude of Christ. But let me ask you this. How differently would your life be? Or how differently would you lead if you reminded yourself every single day that Jesus Christ sacrificed for you in humility? That with such humility, that humility led Jesus to his death. That that humility that humility led him to the cross to die for your sins. That that humility led him to be the savior of your world and the world. That that humility led to a glorious resurrection. And if we are in Christ, we should imitate Christ. And that's the challenge for us. Because maybe today you do have to reconstruct how you lead. Or maybe today... Uh, it's a moment to pray and, and say, Lord, Lord, I, I repent and I need to come back to you and really, really imitate you. Imitate your humble, your humble leadership. Or maybe today you might be saying, wow, Messiah, that's the first time I've ever heard that Jesus came and died for me. And I, and I man, I, I see that and I'm sinful and I need Jesus because maybe, maybe you're that person today. And so I want to just give you a time to pray. And so let's go ahead and pray together. I just want to give you a time to, to just pray to the Lord. And 
Just ask him to reveal those things in your, your own heart. Lord, you are the holy, almighty, perfect king and leader. Lord, you are the creator and sustainer. Lord, you are glorious. God, thank you for reminding us that you are our ultimate leader. Lord, thank you for setting the example of how we ought to lead with just such humility, Lord, that sacrifices for others. Lord, I pray right now that if there's someone who, who needs you to transform their hearts from death to life, Lord, that you would do that today. Lord, if there's someone in this room that just needs to have a time with you and saying, Lord, forgive me for how I have led and forgive me for how I have not imitated your humble attitude in my life, in my family, in my church, Lord, that today would be the day that we just say, Lord, I'm here and I know you want to work on me. Lord, I know you want me to change and I'm going to see this change as a blessing. And then, Lord, I do pray for our church, Lord, that we would also see change as a blessing because when we follow Jesus, you always ask us to change. We don't stay the same, and I'm grateful for that. God, we love you, and we're going to sing to you, and we're going to praise you because we are just so encouraged that you loved us so much, that you cared for us so much, that you call us your children, that you made a way. God, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.